There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Arts. Welcome to Talk Arts. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling in awe of the metropolis. The metropolis. Yes, because we're in the big city of London. And obviously, (laughs) I used to live here for like more than 20 years. But having moved to Margate, every time I come here, I walk around the streets. And it's almost like when I used to go to New York and you'd see all the giant buildings and you feel that kind of sense of awe. Mm. And what I love most about London is that around every corner, and I literally mean that, there is something creative and a lot of contemporary artwork Mm. and luckily we have loads of public artwork as well Mm. the thing that I love most about a lot of the art that's in London is often it's very handmade and very kind of like personal and thoughtful and it could have even started out from like someone's kitchen table with them drawing you know like a kind of uh, design almost for a, for a public artwork that then through many different um, processes becomes something so huge and so um, influential into all of our everyday lives. Mm. And today we are meeting an extraordinary artist that we've both been a fan of for a, a while now because we first saw their um, installation at the V&A many years ago, which had like a thousand, is that right? No. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I, over a minute, a I was thousand. just like, am I getting carried it's over away? A thousand, it was over small, a thousand, yeah. very small, hand-built, hand-built clay ceramic clay sculptures. And Russell and I have always been obsessed with ceramics, but particularly with ceramics that are part of the contemporary art conversation, kind of ceramics that have ideas buried within them. And, um, <laughs> and right now we've come all the way to Liverpool Street. We're at number 100, which is... Um, very iconic we're in the middle of a kind of huge development here standing in front of the most beautiful ceramic tiled kind of installation so we would like to welcome to talk art Lubna Chowdhury. Hello, <laughs> Good hello. Morning. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so much for meeting us here. You're welcome. We had to kind of sneak in here a bit. Uh, we're in a kind of public-private area of Liverpool Street, which I think we're at the, it's the weekend. I think during the day, this is a thoroughfare, so people That's can right. see the work. I think at the weekends, this is quite private. Yeah, yeah, because there's entrance to, obviously... Uh, 
you know, the workings of the building upstairs. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I think it's quite very quiet around here on Saturdays. So, yeah. But it's lovely. It's good for us to be quiet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but we, yeah. as, as Rob was saying, we are standing here. So this is going to be a, a, an adventure with Lubna today. We're at your first kind of site-specific work we're talking about. And then after this, we're going to go and see your show, A Peer Gallery, mm-hmm. which is what's currently up at the minute, which is an institution in Hoxton, which is fantastic. Yeah. But right now, at 100 Liverpool Street, we're standing in front of 20... Um, ceramic giant tiles, which are, and the title is called Interslice. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about what what we, what the listeners can kind of be seeing right yeah. now? Okay, so uh, the specific site that the building was built on was, it's the site of an old railway station. And so it's got this sort of long history and connection to railways. When I talked to the to the designers of the space, who were Universal Design Studios, they suggested that I work in this particular area, which is, it's almost like a sort of a, a tunnel-like area that connects Liverpool Street to a station to Broadgate, a Broadgate Circus. So this part was was an old old part of the station, which isn't used anymore. Uh, it was an old station whose name I can't remember. Oh, right. Now. Okay. Um, so it wasn't Liverpool Street? It, was it like... wasn't Liverpool Street. Oh, okay. It was an adjoining station. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. That's all right. Um, That's we'll come back yeah, to we'll that. We'll come back to that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, so obviously it had this long history. And I wanted to make reference to the railway history and... Uh, the space had already been designed as this sort of sequence of windows and the artwork uh, had to be set back into these windows for many reasons. Uh, I suppose, A, to protect the artwork, but also um, it sort of offered a really great opportunity to actually see it as windows and think about it as, uh, as that sort of flickering that you tend to get when you're on a railway journey. Oh, and wow. Yeah, exactly. And I, uh, so it was, it was about what I wanted to do was trying to sort of uh, capture glimpses of the urban environment and respond to all sorts of things like architecture, the sort of industrial landscape that you can only ever see from a, a train window because quite often you have access to the backs of buildings, for example, as you're traveling, yeah, right. particularly into London, yes. um, and railway signage, and basically the architecture of, um, <clears throat> of uh, I suppose, the railway system. But also, I had been doing an earlier project, which is, uh, it's a Ten- Thames Tideway project, and one of the sites I was given was, uh, a, it was a site at Greenwich uh, Station, and Greenwich was the first sort of metropolitan railway which linked London to uh, which linked linked London and Greenwich, and at the time, people shaded their eyes. They sort of covered their eyes when they were looking out of the window because they felt that the flickering, um, uh, which is called uh, uh, that sort of flicker, flickering sensation, yeah. would damage their eyes because right. people so hadn't. Yeah, when it was first, yeah it. because people hadn't. Uh, experienced movement at that pace before they'd only ever been on a horse and cart or the back of a horse so the railway was the first time that they'd moved at such speed and they actually felt that it would damage their eyes so that was sort of in the back I bet of my there was mind propaganda at the time and like the red tops saying <laughs> yeah. rail travel is really dangerous for you don't look out the windows yeah. people are having kind of like seizures absolutely from the, yeah. yeah and it was called optical flow and it's that sense of 
images bur blurring into one another. So I suppose that was in the back of my mind, and I wanted to really play on that. I mean, obviously, you're never going to run through this tunnel at such speed. Some people might, but they're going to get in trouble. Yeah, that's true, when the they're late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when they're late for yeah. work. I yeah. love that idea of, like, glimpses, because it's so yeah. true. Like, when you come on the train and then you see, sometimes you see trees, you see, like, water, you see animals, you see all kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, backs of people, people's gardens, but also yes. industrial sites. I feel that that's the thing that you just never never get access to and uh, yeah I mean I've sort of had many great railway journeys I've traveled through India and uh, Russia and up to the north and you know you sort of see the backs of power stations people just getting on with their day-to-day -day life farmland so it's really I feel as though you, you experience landscape in a very different way when you're on the train and I wanted to sort I suppose pay homage to that yeah. so as an artist you're drawn to these backs of power stations you just said other yeah. people would be like well that's the back of a power station I'm not yeah. bothered with you like that's fascinating yeah. exactly I love that sort of industrial archaeology and um yeah, and just sort of uh, seeing how things work, things how seeing that seeing how things are put together. Um, yeah, just that sort of functionality that's revealed um, that you don't normally see when you're just looking at a corporate corporate yeah. frontage of a building, for example. You want to see the inner working. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so as an artist, a project like this, how does this come to you? Do you have to pitch it? Because like, in architecture, yeah. people have to pitch it and then they win it. And yes. they win that Is this the sort of thing where that's you right. have to pitch for this or uh, are they coming to you for yeah. this? Yeah, well... I suppose when I, at the beginning of my career, so just going back in terms of, his, in terms of my own history a little bit, uh, you know, you referred to that multi-object piece that you'd seen at the V&A Metropolis. Yes. And that was the sort of work that I was making when I first came out of the Royal College, uh, sort of um, sculptural work that referred to all sorts of cultural histories from different places, different geographies, different... Uh, time periods, uh, different cultures. Um, and uh, I felt that at the time, uh, it, I, I felt in the wrong place at the wrong time because there wasn't really a response to the work in the 1990s. So after sort of struggling on for a while, I just decided to put the work away and think about how I could use my skills in ceramics mm. uh, to make work that was a bit more accessible and I didn't, you know, it was before the age of social media and really the only place that people could see work was in galleries. And I wanted to start to make work that was more accessible to a more diverse range of people. So I started to work, think about applying my skills to tile work because I knew I could integrate it into the urban environment. And so, uh, yeah, and so... I suppose initially I worked with a friend of mine, Ian, who is a graphic designer, and our first commission that we won was with um, Terence Conran to make a piece of work for a, a, a private dining room and a new restaurant that was opening in Paris um, and taking British cuisine to the French, which was unheard of in those days. Did it survive? No. No. <laughs> what happened to your tiles that were there? What happened to oh, they're still there. Oh, are they? They're still there. Another, it's a French yeah. restaurant now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, it is. It's sort of like a club. It's got, yeah, it's like a burlesque club now. Lovely. But that was sort of, that's what it was, its history was. It was sort of like a jazz club, an early jazz club. Anyway, uh, so uh, that was the first commission. And then it's been, I suppose, then that sort of rolled. And I 
thought at some point I would come back to my sculptural work, but I hadn't for a very long time. So I basically just worked on public artworks for about 20 years. And what I really loved about tile is its modularity, which enables you to sort of work on all sorts of scales. Even if I've got a small studio, I can work... Um, uh, I can work in sections on an enormous project, yes. but also it really opened up the idea of working with industrial materials for me because as much as I loved the material of clay, I didn't really want to be tied to a studio making humble pots, you know. Mm. Um, so it just really opened up my community of people that I work with. So I could work with interior designers and architects and make work that was really accessible to people in a very incidental way. So they wouldn't have to go to a, a gallery to see the work, for example, because there's always that sort of fear of the institution for people who are not used to going to galleries. So it was about putting artwork into places where it was like totally accessible, it wouldn't be a planned, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not a planned experience. It could become part of people's everyday commute. They could take it in or they could uh, ignore it, yeah. you know. She made so the thing I think, public yeah. Public is peripheral, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You, like this work, people are going to walk past and yeah. might notice it, might not notice yeah. it. By the time they do stop and notice it, they're like, oh, yeah, wow, this absolutely. is here for us. Yeah, and it's for everybody. That's the thing. I think that's what I loved about doing public artwork, that... Um, you know, whether you were a homeless person or whether you had a job in the city, you'd have exactly the same experience of the work. So that's what's, uh, what was really great about it. But then also, uh, I suppose on a, on a creative level, it also opened up uh, the ability to, well, uh, the opportunity to work with colour, for example, because when you're working with tile, uh, you're firing the tiles flat in the kiln right. and the glaze sort of stays where it is. Whereas if you're working on a three-dimensional object, which I had been doing previously, um, my glaze palette was quite limited and glaze generally tends to move south like honey when you heat it up. And so it's very difficult to get graphic intensity. And for me, um, I suppose... I felt that clay slightly trapped me, working with clay previously had trapped me in this sort of very crafty world of yeah, you working You didn't want to manually. do it at the beginning, you were like, no. you were trying to resist it. Yeah, and also, yeah, I was trying to resist it because I wanted to be, work I, I suppose I wanted to be part of a, a modern world that was involved with technology and thinking about the future and... Uh, working with new techniques and processes. And Tile actually opened all that up for me because I could work with, thing, uh, with processes like water jet cutting. I could work with ready-made industrial modules. I what could is really... A, what's a module? A module, so a tile, for example, oh, like right. a tile so module. So you would, you would you craft your own tiles, but then you would also buy ones yeah. from b yeah. for example. Yeah, exactly. So at the, at the beginning... Yeah. Uh, all the tiles, like say for example for the Conran project, yeah. it was all handmade tile. And that's because I was quite adherent to the rules of the ceramic world because there was a sense that you must do everything by hand um, and you must, you know, wedge your own clay and mix your own glazes and so on. And working with tiles, because the projects were so large, I just couldn't make all the tiles. So at the beginning with the Conran project, there's a large handmade element. 
But then over the years, I started working more and more with industrial tile because there's no point me making the tiles. It's a bit like art, an artist it's making their... Yeah, it's time-consuming. It's you stretching your own canvas and yeah, stretch your bars yeah. and nailing it in. Yeah, exactly. You just or, want to get to work, don't yeah, you? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or an artist making their own paper, for example. You know, it's that level. So or that that's the, I suppose... Uh, that that's a sort of similar analogy, yeah. but um, yeah. So I started, to, and also with the with industrial tiles, there's a sort of regularity to them, which means that you can actually just get on with the job of of um, of creating and working with color and glaze and composition. You know, and so. actually that's something that I think is really unique to what you do because yeah. I, funnily enough, have been staying a slightly um, a few times at the Standard Hotel in Kings Cross. Oh yeah. And every time I was arriving there, I always yeah. felt really comfortable at the reception because uh. because of the tiles. And I was actually like zoning in on the walls and thinking yeah. like how beautiful the actual glazes were. Yeah. And what's really because you've obviously done an installation. <laughs> um, but what what I love about it is that the actual textures within the tiles, mm. like. Each each panel, you, you, you actually like do many different kinds of glazes. Yes. And they're super specific, but they actually change the way the colour is presented to the eye. So like, for example, here with this kind of rich red, yeah. like it's got real kind of movement and texture. So it's very it. retro red. Yeah. It's amazing colour. And then whereas the, the kind of teal colour there is much more smooth yeah, and flat. So absolutely. you're kind of, even though it's all ceramic, you're actually yeah. able to bring kind of a different way that you interpret yeah, that's cr it. Is that cracklier? Is that what you call it? Crack yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's like a crackle glaze. And then, yeah, I mean, I suppose with this project, because it was such a large project, I had to very carefully uh, plan out exactly where each colour went and think about the sort of juxtapositions of colour and so on. And so there is a large element of sort of very flat colour that almost looks like an industrial glaze, but I can assure you like it's all done. Yeah, yeah, it's all done in the studio. Hey, but wow. then there's always a counterpoint to it where there's a, a sort of a much more textured glaze or I might layer two glazes over one another to get uh, to create some sort of texture and then the, there's also a slight three-dimensional quality to each panel where as you're walking by you can see the edges of some of the tiles and they've been picked out in a color so oh, wow. it's just bringing a slight element of relief how into long the work. is yeah. this? I mean, when they come to you with this project, do they yeah. give you a timeline like, we need these up by this time? Yeah, uh, they did give a timeline, but obviously COVID hit, and so the timeline was quite extended. But I think, um, yeah, it's interesting because I won the commission in about 2017, just before I went into, I, I was just about to start a, a residency at the V&A, and I remember going on the first day of my residency for, the interview for this commission and actually I'd made a really uh, a sort of I'd made a decision when I went to the V&A that I wanted to try and reconcile these two uh, sort of areas of my practice so I'd got the tile-based work works on the one hand and I had the sculptural work on the other and it had become quite um I, I ended up with two quite disparate areas of my practice and I wanted to consolidate them at the V&A and bring everything together and contextualise it under one umbrella. Mm. And I knew that I had to start talking about the tile work in a much more personal way because I think for many years I'd just uh, gone to interviews, uh, responded to the brief, 
uh, not talked about the work in any way, uh, in, in a personal sense in any way. Uh, so I sort of... Uh, uh, it felt really commercial. Yeah, well, it wasn't that it was commercial. It was just that I sort of felt that people who were commissioning me, who were designers and architects, wouldn't necessarily be interested in where the work had evolved from, right, right. what my personal history was, you know. And so I knew that there was obviously a really rich history of tiles in architecture in the Middle East and in, you know, in Asia, mm. alongside the history, rich history here as well in Europe. But I never really talked about that. I never talked about where my color sense came from or uh, the geometry that's inherent in why, tiles. Why uh, because... I felt that people weren't interested. I felt as though people weren't interested because there's a sort of hierarchy of design uh, at the time. Craft is always seen yeah, as yeah, like, yes. yeah. Craft, it, it, but also like a cultural hierarchy that if you're a person of uh, who's from another culture, for example, yes. that your uh, creative history is not as relevant as design history in Europe. Yeah. So, and that, in a way, that's the sort of education. I mean, I know it sounds quite surprising now, but when I was at the Royal College, all history that was taught was European history. There was no, uh, hardly any reference to uh, the history of art from the Middle East that had been so influential, yeah. Islamic geometry that was seen as a sort of, you know, Owen Jones had gone to the Middle East and brought the idea of Islamic geometry back as this sort of new modern language. But it was no it, it wasn't acknowledged, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, and then also, you know, movements like Memphis, for example, drew very heavily on Indian architecture and yes. Indian design and Indian colour sensibilities, but it was never mentioned. And it's so, funny, isn't it, with that? Because it's almost like, it, they are obviously brilliant at what they did but it's almost yeah exactly but it's quite funny that um this idea of genius or like innovation yeah. or something as yeah, if like something's brand yeah. new and they it's did it very located yes. in europe exactly and hardly ever any uh acknowledgement of where it came from and somebody like a tory sotsad who's one of the leaders of the memphis movement he visited india over a about 30 times mm. and became really seduced by its culture and he was very disillusioned with western modernism and architecture and he really responded to the sort of combination of spirit spirituality yes. and uh and creativity sort of architectural creativity that he saw in india and he took that language back to italy America, Europe. Did he you know. cite his sources then? Not always. I mean, right. uh, uh, he's uh, obviously he might. Yeah, no, I think he did, but it was never picked up on right. by the design press right. until fairly, fairly recently. Mm. And now there, are, I mean, you know, there's a there's a village or a, a town in India called Thiruvannamalai, and if you look at the architecture there, I mean. It is utterly Memphis, yeah. or, or Memphis is utterly it, you know. So, do you know what I love about that though? Is yeah. I think you were talking about innovation and like um, trying to do something that's like you know adding to the dialogue, not yeah. just like repeating what's been before. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting: this whole development in the last um, kind of decade, where um, different cultures are being kind of um, 
uh, accepted more somehow, like on yeah. an international level. Yeah. Um, I think it has to do with the internet and, and, and the way yes. that like, instead of having to go and find a book, yes. which not everyone would have had A, the time to go mm. to a library and actually research it. Yeah. You always have to know about something to seek it out yes. Yes. in a way. Yeah. But I yeah. feel like with the internet, it's almost made, made it easier yeah, to actually, actually find where things have been. It's put in yeah. front of you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, because also, I mean, I sort of feel that, you know, there weren't those books in the library. No, exactly. They weren't know. written either. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think sometimes they were written, but yeah. it wasn't part of it. I suppose it, it, there wasn't that connection to design and architecture and the fine arts. And obviously there were sort of references with Picasso and African sculpture, yes. you know, being inspired by African sculpture. So there were those sorts of things. But exactly. But again, it wasn't sort of held on an equal footing, mm. you know. But I sort of, I do feel now that we live in a completely different world where you can access any corner of the globe from the comfort of your sofa on yeah. social media, <laughs> no, you know. Yeah. So and that might be sort of quite superficial. But I sort of feel that at least people are becoming visually aware, you know. Um, and um, yeah, and things are really opening up. The discussions opening up, and and I think that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to leave the world of craft because I felt like the only Asian in the craft world, and there wasn't really anyone to have that sort of dialogue about identity or race or different cultural and social histories. And I felt that a lot of the work that I was making wasn't really responded to. I couldn't really enter into a dialogue with anybody. But this is because you, prior to 2017 residency at VNA, you were yeah. sort of stopping yourself from allowing them conversations happening because you well, felt, was it a sort of sh shame about? No, it wasn't was it? shame. It was just sort of frustration because I felt, it wasn't really 2017. So 2017 was when I did the residency at the VNA. Right. But I had put the sculptural work, Metropolis, to, to bed probably around... 2000, about 2000. So, the, so Metropolis had been shortlisted for the Jerwood Prize um, in this ceramics. This is a seminal work of yours that yeah. you made from 1991 to 2012, and it's over a thousand, as we say in the intro. Yeah. Small hand-built clay sculptures, and they're all very, they all have very unique personalities. It's like city life experiences. It feels like all the elements of humanity yeah. are kind of there, and. Yeah. And you can get completely lost in it. Yeah, yeah. And this I is mean, like an obsession that you... you <laughs> it made. was an obsession. I mean, uh, yeah, I'll talk about that. Uh, so I started it when I was at the Royal College. And obviously at the Royal College, as I mentioned earlier, there was this sort of real um, emphasis on European art, art history and design and, and craft. Um, and I felt... Uh, that I couldn't always relate to that, but I was actually very seduced to it, and I, I uh, seduced by it, and I felt slightly sort of beholden to that hierarchy, um, that I had to adapt to that, mm -hmm. and uh, even though I had this sort of very other language, and because for me, my inspiration had been anthropological collections, because it was very rare to see the work of a non-European artist in the gallery or, um, or an exhibition or, you know, or even hear of other non-European artists. Yeah. So I suppose what I, was, I was quite naturally drawn to anthropological collections. Because, like where? Like, where uh, like say, for example, uh, I mean, they had a small collection at Manchester Museum. Uh, but then also, I mean, I loved the Pitt Rivers Museum, yes. and then there's an Where's incredible, it's in Oxford. Oxford. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. It's in the University Museum, and it's 
full of like beautiful old cabinets with drawers that you can pull out that have got totems in them. And yeah, it's incredible. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, you have to go. Uh, and then there's another museum called the Tropen Museum, which is in Amsterdam. Um, and yeah, so those are the two main ones that I loved. And I visited those when I was at Manchester on my BA. Um, and that's what I was really drawn to because I could sort of see things that have been manually made that had sort of powerful symbolism that were made from materials that were unfamiliar in the European landscape. So that's what I started to respond to. And that's what my work sort of geared, became geared, became inspired by, even though a lot of these collections were, I, I suppose, um, they were quite questionable because of the way that they'd been collected. Yeah, the way they'd been acquired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But also presented like in a very... collection. Yeah, yeah. they it's were like... almost like a fetish thing on some level. Yeah, exactly. And then also just sort of thrown well. together in one, you know, yeah. sort of objects, completely unrelated objects from different cultures all thrown together. Right. But in a way that I actually quite... I suppose I like the chaos of it. Uh, and then so... I'm just trying to think. Yeah, so that's what I was. Uh, I was. I felt really inspired by. And then, uh, but equally, I had this language of sort of modernism that that had come through my education. So I suppose the work's always been about trying to reconcile those two languages. And then when I was at the Royal College, I had a tutor, Eduardo Palozzi, yes. who's a, who a so pop amazing. artist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tottenham Court Road. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And he, what was amazing about him, even though he was located in the ceramics department, he worked across all mediums that you could think of. And he didn't have any hierarchy at all about areas of work and he really encouraged me and he was also inter interested in anthropo anthropology um and collections and the museum did he push you more into ceramics sorry did he uh, make you feel like tiles and ceramics yeah, could be no, contemporary you know art no not at the time he really encouraged the sculptural work and he and i won his travel scholarship when i was at the royal college and went off to india because i think he felt that i was being too influenced by modernism by european modernism right. so he gave me his travel travel scholarship and i went off for six six weeks to sort of travel around south india and look at temple architecture and I mean that was really it was a really instrumental sort of experience and then when I came back I, I felt as though this is a language that's part of my inherited culture and I must make use of it yeah. and but I, I wanted to try and merge them in in uh, merge these two languages and bring them together and that's what Metropolis was about it was about taking multiple references um, and bringing them together but for me, that was always an awkward relationship. Mm. In a large singular object, I found it very difficult to do. And so I started working very directly just within the facility of my own hands and making small objects just sitting at my table. And then that process of uh, thinking and making becomes very shortened because there's a short distance from your brain to your hand. And so you're making very sort of intuitively and sort of almost subconsciously. And all those references, whether they're architectural references from the city of London or whether it's temple architecture in Madurai or whether it's sort of uh, geometry from uh, a Quranic page or a Quranic illumination or uh, a roadside shrine in India or... Um, 
uh, you know, a new kettle in... Uh, John Lewis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, a new streamlined kettle or whatever. <laughs> so all those references are at play. And they all sort of came out in the work in a very sort of... Um, yeah, just in a much more relaxed and uh, sort of woven... They were woven together in the way that I could never have contrived if I'd tried to make a singular object. And also multiple objects told the story... Um, sort of collectively, rather than trying to tell the story through one object. It's, so I started working on multi-object pieces from that point. It's yeah. such an interesting idea as well for other artists to listen to, because yeah. I think sometimes, um, if you're like starting out, at whatever age you are actually, yeah. um, it can be so overwhelming, this idea of like some big ideas, some big yes. work, you know, yeah. and also trying to get your work seen or something. Yeah. But I love the idea of like, that you can start making smaller things that yeah. can become a greater whole. Well, yeah. taking the and, time, like 1991 yeah. to 2012. Yeah. Yeah. But also like the, the freedom you can get yeah. from doing something that, that kind of small scale mm. and immediate and yeah. kind of like literally at your kitchen table, yeah. do you know what I mean? I mean, like, I must say that I didn't feel uh, sort of all... The, I mean, now I think, oh, what a brilliant idea it was. But at the time, <laughs> I was sort of just, you know, just uh, sort of crippled with self-doubt, you know, right. because... Is that I why just, you kept going, do you think? Is that why you well, made over a thousand? Yeah. Do you know, it, in a way, I... I didn't do it sort of continuously. I sort of stopped and started, stopped and started. So I kept going back to it. So when I, when it was first shown at, uh, at the Jerwood Prize exhibition that I was talking about, I had 500 pieces. And then I continued to add to All it. All in storage in your house, all kind of yeah, bubble wrapped. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and, it, well, what was funny was that I put it away around the time I was pregnant with my 17-year-old son and then bought it out again when he was about 16 and he hadn't ever seen it. <laughs> I mean, the first time he saw it was uh, uh, all together was when it was on display at the v wow. So that was quite funny. It was just like a nice marking point at either end. Well, if he'd have seen them as a kid, he might have thought they were toys. Yeah, probably, <laughs> yeah, because there were a lot of toys in there, you know, looking at sort of, yeah, I was obviously very interested in sort of material cultures as well, so looking at things that have been vacuum-formed out of plastic yeah. or wooden toys that are made in India or in a sort of very ad hoc way, yeah. you know. So there were some toys in. And also, I suppose, because of the small scale of them, everything's reduced down to a singular scale. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was the self-doubt then? Can you speak a bit about that? Because I'm, yeah. I'm also fascinated with this idea that we see artists, you know, like yourself, who are doing really well and, and they're having yeah. exhibitions and doing public installations. Yeah. But actually behind that, yeah. success is often like been years yeah. of kind of development <clears throat> and, and struggle in a yeah. way. Yeah, I suppose... I suppose with the Metropolis piece, it was sort of, I suppose you, all artists want to be included in some sort of dialogue and they want to be part of um, critical thinking around your practice. And I sort of felt that my work, in a way I'd fallen into ceramics because I was really good at making with my hands. Right. And not because I loved the history of British ceramics or European ceramics or that I was particularly engaged in it. And I felt that a lot of the dialogue around ceramics was that. And it wasn't really my history. And I felt as, I found it very difficult to engage with. Um, because I think there's, yeah. And, and also just that sort of intellectual thinking about making. I hadn't really been trained to articulate it um you know being on a craft based course quite often it's very skills based um so and i knew that i wanted to make 
work that was much more about identity. But because I hadn't had the dialogue, because I hadn't come into contact with other artists who were thinking about identity at the time, and I was lodged in the craft world, which is sort of very... Uh, I, I suppose in a way it's quite middle class and very uh, English. Yeah. And, uh, and so back then it was like Bernard Leach, wasn't it? it was yeah, like, I remember as a kid in the yeah, 80s, absolutely. everyone would like talk about him like he was some kind of god. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so there's always this reference to Bernard Leach. And Studio then, pottery. Yeah, and then also the, a real reverence for Scandinavian ceramics, you know, yes. plinth-based sort of singular objects that's, that were vessel-based of, often. You know, not everybody was making that sort of work, but that was the sort of I work that was revered. I'm thinking of the British ones like Lucy, Dame Lucy Rye and yeah. Lucy Bernard Leach. And My points of reference were, as I said earlier, you know, anthropological collections, not other ceramicists and not other craftspeople. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I just felt... Oh, we're talking about insecurity, weren't we? And self-doubt, yeah. Um because I, I suppose I wasn't working within a particular format of making objects that looked a particular way. And it felt as though maybe I was doing that because I didn't have the skill to make a larger object. Or um, uh, someone once said, oh, you know, making a small object, in a way, it's, it's about being able to fit it into somebody's intellectual letterbox. Uh, you know? <laughs> Wow. I know, and, and that maybe I should be making larger objects because they'd have some more, uh, then I'd have to um, intellectually, they'd have sort of intellectual and uh, uh, sort of heft in a way. Um, but yeah, I suppose I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. That's the thing, you know, I, I was making small objects. I enjoyed making the small objects, but it's only when I had about 100 or 120 or, uh, you know, 500 that actually it all started to make sense mm. to me. And, and then the story sort of revealed itself. Wow. And I was able to see what I was doing. And, uh, but it sort of came just through doing it. I think maybe if I'd have had some sort of dialogue with somebody about what I was doing, then it might have, I, it, it might have all crystallized a bit earlier. No, but I also think there's a mm. big message in that because yeah. we spoke with Rebecca Warren before in um, The Sculptor, and she often talks about the, the pressure you would have had back in the 90s, say, uh, um, that you have to have the idea first. And that, um, you know, if you're going to make a contemporary artwork, yes. you need to have this really strong, kind of yeah. rigorous sort of idea. Yeah. But actually, she finds that in the making, mm. by the end of the sculpture, when you've actually created yeah. it, is when the idea reveals itself. Yeah. And that Definitely. you almost have to trust in you as an artist yeah. and in your skill and in yeah. your your um, whole makeup, in a way, will, yeah. will, will come out in the work. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel that it's only in the last five years that my work has started to make sense to me. Because... Right. You know, I talked earlier about having these two very disparate practices and going to the V&A and looking at it again. Because when I was at the Royal College, I was quite often encouraged to go and look at the V&A collections and, and sort of slightly pointed in the direction of the, Asian, the South Asian collection and the Islamic collections. But in a way, they were stuck in a time warp. You know, the earliest objects... or. Yeah, uh, were probably, not the earliest, the latest objects were from about the 1900s and then that was it. It was almost like they stopped collecting at that point yeah. and, you know, uh, a South Asian production had just disappeared off the face of the yeah, globe like or stopped. something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I felt, um, yeah, that only after the V&A did I go back and take ownership of that 
collection and think, right, okay, I'm going to make it useful to me and I'm going to look at cultural hybridity and I'm going to use these collections and look at objects in the collections that are hybrid, that have been made between cultures. And then once I started to do that and find these sorts of very culturally convoluted objects that have been made between cultures, that's when it all started to make sense and I was able to pull together the history of making tiles and the history of making artwork for architecture and tie it in with the history of ornamentation and different attitudes to colour and ornament in different cultures and really, um, yeah, and create a new body of work. Whereas it's like you're owning, splicing so many references. Yeah, exactly. And then also just starting to own the fact that actually I am making quite ornamental work and that is coming from a place of intelligence rather than superficiality which is it's quite often seen as uh or just sort of meager uh, or, or you know simple decoration for example yes, yeah, you know um and just sort of really owning that and being able to articulate it and actually just having the time to articulate it because i think quite often when in the early years you're so tied up trying to make work make a living you know i sort of felt as though i was teaching i was having trying to have a family trying to earn a living and in a way you don't really stop to think about what you're doing and i felt that the V&A residency really offered me the opportunity to do that. And then I did another residency sub subsequently in Sweden. And that just gave me time to, again, revisit the way that I was working and sort of have time to steer it with the benefit of sort of hindsight and everything that had gone before. Mm. And then once you've got a body of work that you've made, then you can start to sort of make the connections and sort of take an overview of what you've done mm. and things become clearer to you. Well, so, there's a title of your show is called Code Switching, which was a previous show. That's right, yeah. So that was in India. Yeah. Yes, which was yeah. phenomenal. And that, that what you're talking about now... It feels mm. like that it, on on the press release. It says mm. there's. It's like you're trying to find a middle ground between art and craft, east and west, yeah. ornamental and minimal, industrial and handmade, architecture and body, object and image. Yeah. And this code switching thing. Yeah. Rob Rob loves the idea of code switching, but it's like as an actor, I'm always yeah. code switching because I'm putting yeah. on an accent. I'm becoming. Yeah. I'm walking something else. I'm becoming something else. And you're code switching between so many references. Yeah. But again, as yeah. the quote says, trying to find this middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some. Sometimes you're trying to find the middle ground and then other times I feel like you're just reacting against something, you're reacting against the authority of something and I feel, you know, and I talked about earlier on about being plagued with self-doubt, you know, I, I think now I've got to the point where I can uh, reject the authority of Western modernism if I want to or I can reject ornamentation or I can just swing between the two and you've given yourself that permission yeah, now. yeah yeah I mean I think you know as a diasporic artist somebody who's got a sort of multiple cultural and social histories uh, and comes from a variety of cultures and races and has lived in different places around the world. You were born in Tanzania in East Africa. Yeah. And then you left there when you were quite young and lived in the north of England. Yeah, that's right, in Rochdale. So, uh, yeah. Quite similar places, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> even that is like socially and culturally a sort of huge shift, shift. between... What age Rock did you leave Tanzania? Well, uh, Tanzania I left at five yeah. and then we settled in... Uh, well, we came here, settled in South Hall momentarily and then moved to Rochdale right. to sort of very industrial i mean rochdale obviously is a very it's a 
it's a textile town uh, with lots of sort of industrial architecture. So we were surrounded by that. And then eventually I ran away and came to London in 1989. Yeah. But those industrial so, references then that yeah. I guess a lot of people in Rochdale would yeah. be like, oh, this isn't very attractive. You were yeah. drawn to and a state yeah. with you and impacted well, your visual mind. Yeah, I think it has. I mean, at the time, I, I suppose I didn't really... I, I, in a way, you just absorb these references. I mean, we lived in a terraced house where you stepped out into the backyard and there's a chimney there, you know, just looming over the backyard. But it was we were that like a factory close chimney. To it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We were that close to it and surrounded by it totally. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and that you know, that's what I grew up with. And then, um, yeah, and then obviously after that, I moved to London, and London was at the point where Canary Wharf was being mm. built. You know, I was teaching in East London, so I had a cycle ride through the city constantly. And I remember that when I first arrived in London, I just walked from South Kensington to Whitechapel, taking photographs and coming across all sorts, like a real shift in architecture, because mm. Whitechapel and sort of around that Brick Lane area at the time was really desolate and deserted so it's all those sort of shifts from what not just from area to area but sort of from region to region but then also having shifts between cultures at the same time as well um but yeah but also cultural expectations between sort of family and trying to build a new life in in the city um you know, and then trying to sort of balance those and find some sort of resolution where you could keep loyal, you can stay loyal to both. Mm -hmm. It was always quite tricky. Um, and now I sort of feel much more, uh, uh, yeah, that I found this sort of equilibrium now. Yeah. It's interesting that journey in life, isn't it? I think um, I'm finding that myself now in my um, early 40s. Like yeah. you, everything sort of comes together, all the chaos of your, your mind and you're trying yeah. to work out who you are and what Absolutely. you are and then finding your voice. Yeah. And I think this, this work here for you must feel like, um, I imagine, like some kind of, I don't know, it's such an yeah. important work, this to me. Like, yeah. And to be in the public and it's seminal, such a large, another seminal a large piece. Yeah. Like yeah. sort I of the so. confidence of it. I think it does feel very confident. <laughs> is what I'm does to say. it? Oh, well, that's yeah. good to see. You got good to know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, I think it was a culmination of lots of knowledge developed from previous projects. Yes. So when I came to this project, I felt as though... I knew exactly what I was doing. I was very confident in presenting the work. During the interview for the project, I talked about my inherited culture for the first time in a project, a public art project. Wow. And everybody responded to it really wow. well. Yeah. So, right. I mean, I didn't go overboard, but I just talked about color, ornamentation, history of tile, uh, in architecture in the Middle East and brought all those references in and everybody really responded to them and it felt really natural and normal whereas previously I've been very fearful of it I just I mean a lot of architects in a way are quite frightened of color and when you start talking about applying tile to their purest vision and yes. you know they want to run a mile <laughs> I've heard so, that with um, hanging artworks it's like if you hang a painting or yeah. you have a photograph often the, yeah. um, the interior architects or the architects just completely freak out yeah they would rather you not hang anything. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like the design, uh, the interior uh, architects, they were the ones that brought me on board for this mm. project. So I felt confident that they uh, 
loved my work mm. and they wanted to use it for the project and they were there very supportive in the interview so yeah so you have so such a confidence great. with color anyway I think you said it's part of your DNA yeah I suppose so yeah um let me think is it possible yeah I suppose it is but again you know I think I've always uh sort of oscillated between this idea of uh I suppose between sort of western preconceptions about color because I think quite often colors thought of as maybe primitive or superficial or childish or feminine or um um yeah unnecessary you know or sometimes deceptive because people think you're using color to cover things up mm -hmm. so I think there are all sorts of prejudices against color that whereas I think what you know quite often like white purist simplicity has this sort of moral authority where um it's very respected and it's seen as honest and straightforward, you know. So I think there's all those sorts of prejudices with colour that I've had to battle with, particularly when you're trying to apply it to architecture. And I, I mean, you know, I did go to a project once where the architect just said, I don't want tiles on my building. And I was thinking, well, what am I doing here? You know, but anyway. <laughs> oh uh, did, you but, get, did you win in the end, though? No. <laughs> oh, no. No, I didn't. But weirdly, his project didn't get built. And then, uh, the, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then I got invited back to do another project in the same. It was in Cardiff, so in fact, I did two projects in Cardiff. So that was quite nice uh, after the event. And every time I went back to install my project, his plot was still unbuilt. Yeah, oh, good. Wow. You were like, I can't remember who he was now. So, so I hope he's not just listening. Bit here, one, one more question about this: yeah. then. so site-specific works in the public realm. Is yeah. there an anxiety about? The protection of them because they, they could yeah. be kind of vandalized they could be sprayed yeah. over anyone could do anything have you yes. had any experiences but, but also wasn't paolozzi's taken down at tonical yeah, road when they were doing road. well at one point they were going to trash it all and there was this yeah. kind of thing where everyone was going you have to save I these tiles. and what did they do with that one they, they took them down and then, down and put them back up put them back yeah. up okay they took some of, uh, some they, of it though, they yeah. put some of it back up and then some of it has gone up to the, the museum and bodnar in scotland or the scottish gallery yeah yeah i can't remember in scotland yeah um so it and it's been preserved uh so that's great because i absolutely loved that me too yeah. and it became yeah. part of all of our lives doesn't it? Yeah. in london over yeah. the last 20 30 years there's a sort of rotunda yeah. and yeah that yeah. where they've kept it, some of it yeah. yeah so how do you feel about that for you like in the future <laughs> yeah uh, i suppose i'm uh, yeah i feel actually quite detached from my work once it leaves the studio i feel i'm not a very emotional I don't get emotionally attached to work. Uh, I mean, even with Metropolis, for example, now it's in the collection of the, uh, it's with the Jamil Gallery, which is in Dubai. And everyone kept saying, oh, aren't you upset that it's gone? And I was just like, no, I'm really delighted that I Loads don't have storage to. storage Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and also it's got a better home and people can see it, you know. But I understand, you know, I do get what you're talking about. With public artwork, it's very vulnerable and... There are people out there who make it their mission to vandalise public art, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a bit nerve-wracking, but I feel the latest projects I've done, so there's the Standard, there's Great Ormond Street, there's Liverpool Street... Uh, uh, what about the project in Slough? What did someone oh, yeah. shout to you over the garden <laughs> Oh, yeah. There's some cheeky ur urchins. It, it wasn't Slough, actually. It was Hayes and Harlington. And we were photographing an installation, a really early one, in a, um, 
in a subway and some cheeky urchins shouted something very rude. That Sorry, I'm tell not... us what a police tell us. It was hilarious. <laughs> no, okay, so these kids like put their heads over and they just said, your mum's a prostitute. And <laughs> oh I God. went, that is not my mum. Oh, my God. Uh, anyway, I know. Anyway, I just thought, God, they're going to be back later on to vandalise the work. Oh, no. Anyway. And there was another one that had loads of bird poop all over Oh, it, yeah, it? yeah. So when once so the one in Slough, um, I went with a friend of mine, Angelo, who's a photographer, to photograph it for the website. And some pigeons had taken residence above it. It's an enclosed space, but the pigeons are just sort of perched, roosted at the top of the work. And it, when we went to look at it, it had sort of guano all down the front oh, of it. No. I was so disappointed. Oh, no. But anyway, then we went back about a week later and it had all been cleaned up and it looked gleaming new. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it's amazing. Gu Guano's really um, uh, toxic. Uh, it's worse than asbestos. Oh, is it? Yeah, and you have to oh. pay loads to have it removed. I oh. learned that when we were developing what the market. What is guano then? It's the pigeon poo. And, and when, when, when it piles up, it's actually more toxic than... Um, it can actually like harm you as a human. Oh. Um, it's more toxic than asbestos. And we had to have it all removed in the Margate building. You know our old... Um, yeah. Sorry, the current gallery. It was a derelict building for like a decade. And pigeons have been living in there. And that was one of the biggest costs that Carl had to pay. Oh, it wasn't just really? removing asbestos, but it was removing the guano. It's yeah. like shockingly toxic. So always stay away from it. Yeah, yeah. And it's <laughs> Stay not... away from pigeon poo, yes, everyone. Stay don't, away from pigeon poo, everyone. Pigeon poo. Well, it's that quite is the caustic as well, isn't it? Because if you get it on your car, you're supposed to clean it off straight away. Right, right. Because right. right. it corrodes, yeah. doesn't right. it? Yeah. But anyway, uh, but also, I mean, what I have to say about that slough piece is it's on the A1 and it's... Uh, uh, sorry, A4, and it's at the heart of this sort of central like commuter hub. So there's the railway station on one side, mm. the bus station on the other, the A4 on the other. And actually, like millions, I feel like millions of people see it a week, you know, no matter what form of transport you're using, it, you know, I mean, I've driven past it and gone, wow, there it is, you know, so it's just really nice and surprising to see it. So I sort of feel obviously really delighted to see it in the public realm. And most of the work I've done, I feel it's quite well looked after. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you just have to be sort of... I think you just have to sort of cut the ties once it leaves the studio, generally. And, uh, yeah, and then whoever whoever has the work and has commissioned it, then they become the custodians of it. Yeah, they're and kind of guardians. Occasionally you might yeah. be called call back to do something to you know, to advise on something. But I have to say, Touchwood, I haven't had to do that yet. Right. So, yeah. Well, let's head over to Peer yeah. Gallery now. And uh, You know what, as well? I actually did my driving test in Slough. Okay. I, oh, I grew up you? very near there, yeah, so oh, I might wow. have even driven past it, oh, I don't know. Oh. I want to go back there now and see it. Um, so we're on our way now, we're going to walk down and we're going to go to Peer Gallery. In Hoxton. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. 
Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, Rob. So we are now at Peer Gallery in Hoxton, which is incredible. And there is uh, a lot of history for us with this gallery, isn't there, Rob? That's right. Um, I used to work with Catherine Story and she did an amazing exhibition here. And I actually have an edition that was made called Camera, which is um, behind us now here in the um, in the office. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, and I used to have a gallery very, very close to here. So Peer was like our kind of local public um, space. And I've always really enjoyed coming here because um, they renovated it a number of years ago. And it's a really inclusive, um, quite democratic space. And yes. I love the way they have a big like glass window at the front and you can actually see the exhibitions even when it's closed. Exactly. And there's a lot of people I've seen in the past at nighttime when they walk past and they leave the lights on and you can actually see the That's art. Right. So it's a really inclusive kind of um, space for art. Which sort of works with Lubna's philosophy of a democratic public art. But yeah, passers-by can engage without coming in. And Peer Gallery has uh, been here for 20 years in Hoxton. It's a very intimate space, has very intimate shows, and it's very close to various estates. It's very inbuilt in the community, but there's a lot of like connection with the community, with collectors, with the art world. So it's this very kind of beautiful, cohesive uh, public institution. Yeah, exactly. And Lubna's brand new show has just opened, and it's on until the end of November. I think the November 20th. 20th. The 20th of November. And um, it's really worth coming to see. We, we've just spent the last kind of 15, 20 minutes in there, and it's breathtaking. Yeah. I think it's one of the best shows I've seen this year. Yes. Um, and it's all these different textures. Um, there's uh, wooden sculptures, yeah. and then obviously the ceramics, yeah. and um, even uh, kind of rope work, and all, mm. all this kind of very intense yeah. different um, combinations of Let's materials. So the show's called Erratics, yes. and Erratics is a geological term. Have I got that yeah. right? Yeah. So it's uh, it's a term that that's used to describe a large boulder or a rock that's quite often it's frozen into uh, a glacier, and as the glacier travels across land, the rock or boulder is carried quite often hundreds and hundreds of miles or kilometres. And then when it melts, it's deposited in a very foreign landscape where it's a completely different type of rock and it's in a, a different setting. And I felt that that description was a very apt metaphor for somebody who was a diasporic artist and sort of suddenly deposited in a new landscape. Mm. But also it describes, uh, I suppose, the erratic uh, nature or the sort of non-linear trajectory of my practice and the the way that I work and uh, the various references I take on board with the work and the materials and the sort of, I suppose, the moving from public artwork to to gallery-based objects and uh, and then often backwards and forwards. So I think it describes the way I work, but also the, um, uh, uh, I suppose, the experience of being an artist who's diasporic, yeah. 
Absolutely. So this was the show we were talking about just now over at 100 Liverpool Street, Intersplice. That's right, isn't it? Intersplice. Intersize. Intersize <laughs> was uh, tile-based. But now this yeah. show we're actually seeing for the first time sculptures in wood, which yeah. were inspired by your residency at the V&A. That's right, yeah. So when I started my residency at the V&A, I suppose I wanted to do two things. Uh, um, I wanted to try and consolidate both the sculptural work and the tile-based work and contextualise them in one way, but also sort of visit, revisit the collections at the V&A um, and explore the notion of it, I suppose, uh, explore the idea of it being this sort of colonial collection and and trying to, I, um, I suppose, address the hybridity in my own work by looking at the collections and so before I started the residency, I identified a number of objects in the collections that were hybrid objects that had been made between cultures. So I was looking for objects that were very sort of culturally convoluted, that had many different references. And um, I came across this body of work, which was furniture that was made, commissioned by Europeans who had then travelled to, uh, who had travelled to India and then um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there were objects that had been commissioned by European colonizers in India. So that in within the objects, there was this complete merging of different histories of making, different materials, but also different cultural histories and histories of the body. So different ergonomic histories and the way that you would use furniture was very different in the two cultures. Mm. Uh, and one of the earliest objects was this day bed, which um, uh, it was uh, sort of proportionally really uh, sort of extrapolated because obviously the craftsmen in India couldn't understand what the purpose of a day bed was because theirs was a floor-based culture and they would either sleep on a charpoy, which is very low, or they might just sleep on a carpet on the floor with some blankets or something. Whereas Europeans, for their daily nap, they would just lie down on this very narrow thing that you could roll off quite easily. So it yeah. sort of felt it's very... elevated off the floor. Yeah, it's yeah. elevated off the floor. It's very narrow and you could, if you slept, you could probably just roll off it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think the there were all these there were lots of translations and slippages and lack of understanding within the objects that in a way were a reflection of the way that the two cultures interacted because i think with india and europe there was this sort of initially there was this sort of honeymoon period where there was a real sort of getting to know each other and a real interest in each other's cultures and then of course the sort of trade wars kicked off with the east india company and so on and so the relationship sort of soured quite quickly and became one of sort of commercial exploitation right. and and then that at that point the culture sort of slightly uh, became like uh, obviously very suspicious of each other and slightly separated but um during that early period there was this sort of harm harmony of two cultures coming together uh, but the objects sort of told that history really and those are the objects that when i saw them i sort of recognized my own way of working in them because there was a real awkwardness where these two cultures had come together where these sort of aesthetic histories had come together and I'd felt that, that those those were the ingredients, this sort of 
I suppose Western education with this idea of uh, sort of, I suppose there's another idea. So in my work, there's always Western modernism and this notion of horror vacui, which is a term that's quite often used to describe uh, the use of ornamentation um, in non-Western cultures, where there's a tendency to fill uh, objects or cover objects and fill space with as much detail as possible. It's a fear of empty space. Yeah, is it, it a mean, medical term? No. Because <laughs> I think my nan might have had that. Because oh, really? my nan's house was definitely filled to the brim. And I think that I've yeah. inherited that. I have to be, and Rob has, surrounded by stuff. This yeah. horror, horror vacuum. Horror vacuum. It's a yeah. fear of empty space. Because this exhibition yeah. Yeah, is the very a bit busy, like but yeah. it's not yeah. busy in the fact that you can't enjoy every element. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. a lot of things to take in. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I did sort of really... Um, yeah, I, I felt quite cautious about the way that I was putting work into the exhibition because I felt, uh, yeah, I suppose when you're curating an exhibition generally, there's a tendency to be very spare with the presentation. You know, I've seen so many exhibitions where you walk into a room and there's like a bent pipe in one corner and that's it, you know. And then I would, uh, so I sort of felt as though, yeah, I had all this work. I wanted to show it. I wanted to sort of um, uh, explore the narrative connections between the objects, and I and I needed them all to tell the whole story. And also, I wanted to really react against this sort of minimalist presentation. So, sort of reject that authority in a way of of pre presenting work, and just go for it. And actually, I was encouraged very much by Ingrid who's the director here to just put everything in yeah. I think that's why I like the show so much because I feel like every corner you go like even when you go to the second room if you just go around the corner to where the window is there's an amazing yeah. ceramic work there like yeah, hanging on the wall and it's like and I that that sort of shocked me when I saw it there but yeah. I, that's one of my favorite works in the show that that's yeah. one there and it's like I, I like the way that they're all um almost clashing with each other or or having a relationship some of them yeah. might might almost seem like a pair or a, or a triptych even though they are individual works yeah I mean I think in, obviously, in this space, it's a very tight presentation. And then in May next year, the work will, the exhibition will travel to Mima. Great. And that's a Which much larger... In Middlesbrough, yeah. that's right. And it's a much larger space, so it'll be a much sparer presentation. And you'll be able to see the works probably much more clearly and with... I think you can see them clearly here. I don't think... Space. I think it's yeah. an amazing show. Yeah. And I think there's so many successes in it, but yeah. the things that are the most successful, because mm. you're saying about this conversation, for me, with your work at the tableaus, these are the, these are the works that oh, okay. exist that people would yeah. recognise if you know Lubna's work, are these shelves, and then resting against them is this kind of formation, this dialogue between different ceramic shapes, and they all lean in, and it's like this cityscape, or it's like... Uh, coding, there's a message there that you don't know, a subliminal something going through yeah. it. And for me, I'm I'm obsessed with those. Me and Rob just stood in front of them. Rob was like, this is incredible. Yeah. These tableaus are phenomenal. I've got so yeah. many questions about yeah. them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so th these are all yeah. hand-built. Uh, yeah. Or do you use industrial? Yeah. It, so, yeah. So the tableau works came, uh, again, they came out of the V&A residency where I was trying to sort of consolidate my two practices. So I had the tile-based practice on one hand and then the sort of much more uh, hands-on sculptural work. And also I uh, the tile, the, I suppose the, the public artworks had really allowed me to develop um, 
my skills in glazing and really finesse those. So, uh, but I had this sort of, um, how can I say, uh, almost like a, a sort of sculptural... We've got a dog here, by the way. If anyone's listening to the scratches, <laughs> it's, it's not Loveless scratching it's at the table. It's Chief. It's Chief, the blue friend. Frenchie who looks exactly like Rocky. We so love we're, Chief. We're kind of obsessed. I think, I think now we've now we've said what the noise he's, is. I think he's fine. He's part of the episode. We he's love fine. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah. So we. So I had the sort of um, almost like a visual vocabulary vocabulary of form that had come from working on Metropolis, but the skills that I had that I developed during the tile based uh, projects, and I wanted to try and consolidate and bring together those two ways of working and. So almost knit them together. So, so the tableau work that's in the gallery is it's made from industrial tile modules using water jet cutting, but they cut more complex shapes that are much more referential. So they're not referring just to tile. Mm-hmm. They're referring to different architectural histories, uh, different sort of material histories, uh, and architecture, like yeah, the and the exactly, and iconography, sort of bringing together visual, different visual iconographies, but then using glazing skills that I developed during the tile-based work. So it's a sort of coming together. It's like an initial coming together of the sculptural work and the tile-based work. And I, I think at the beginning I thought, oh, this is too contrived and it's a bit awkward. But again, it's one of those things. A bit like Metropolis, where I once I'd made more and more of them mm. and worked out a way of displaying them mm. and thought about actually that sort of overlapping, physical overlapping, as well as overlapping in the reading of the forms, mm. that it started to work. And Absolutely. I think I, st- I talked earlier on about how it sort of almost came across, uh, yeah, it almost happened accidentally because... Quite often when I'm working on tile ob, tile based objects or projects, you know, often there's something that's left over or there's somewhere something that's got a really beautiful glaze result on it. And I'll just keep these objects and stack them up in the studio on the shelf or something uh, just to refer to later on. And I started to see how actually they would work as compositions, as sculptural sort of compositions and that's what I sort of continued at the BNA. Can we can we speak a bit about this water jet um, cutting oh, yeah. kind of process? Because obviously yeah. you've done you do very handmade things, but then there's yeah. also this kind of process too. Yeah. Like how how does that all work on a practical level? Digital. Yeah. yeah. Like, I just yeah. it sounds so kind of exciting. Yeah. So usually what I tend to do is I'll have an idea. I'll probably I'll do a series of sketches, usually just line drawings. And then transfer those line drawings, translate those line drawings into an Illustrator file. So then I'll redraw them in Illustrator. Mm. And then the Illustrator file is sent off to the water jet cutter. And the, the it's like a computerized cutter that's got a very high pressure jet of water. And that's forced out um, at such a high pressure. It's got fine sand in it. So it's a combination of water and sand that you can use to cut glass, metal, stone, anything hard. Uh, But also it's a computerized nozzle. The nozzle of the water jet cutter follows the trajectory of the line that you've drawn. So so you can cut quite complex shapes. And I'd started to do that in very... In a very simple way. So I had a sort of quite a simple geometry. I mean, when you're working on tile projects, you... uh, 
I think when I first started working, I felt sort of felt as though I must respect the botanist grid, you know, and uh, that's how I'd always work and only cut rectangles to place together. And then it started to become a bit more complex and I started to cut circular forms. And then once I started to work on the tableau works, I, you know, the forms got more and more complex and watershed cutting really allows you to do that and to do really fine cutting as wow. well. Yeah. I love the term you use for these tiles then, that they are all individual works and you don't know what they're going to be, but you compose yes, them. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so I never have an idea beforehand of what, of how um, how they're going to come together. So usually I just, yeah, it's sort of a very free and uh, enjoyable and intuitive process in the studio uh, of and also pre-studio, you know, when you're, when you're having the shapes cut, for example. Uh, and even once the shapes come into the studio, I'm not quite sure at the time how I'm going to glaze them. But usually each piece has three or four firings. So if it has three colours on it, it means it's had three firings and sometimes more. But each glaze is individually laid on and then fired then laid on again, another colour will be laid on. So there's this sort of constant responding to the shape and and what you've previously laid down as a colour. Um, so it's not sort of all preconceived. It's it's a very intuitive process that goes on and on and on. And then once I've got so, sort of 50 or 60 shapes, then I'll lay them all out on the floor and compose with them. And how predictable is the um, firing process? Because I, I work with a number of ceramic artists like Sebastian Stirr and Lindsay yeah. Mendick, and I know that they often have real challenges with the firing because yeah. it's kind of unpredictable, but now that's also part of the joy of it. But yeah. with yours, because... Yeah. because the sound that goes thump. Yeah, I know. Like, oh, I know. Broke, I know. Yeah. And yeah. she said she waits for it to go down, even cool. when it's cooling, I think yeah. there's still a potential. Yeah. But with yours, it's slightly different because they're making more like often vessels or shapes or like yes. objects, household objects that you might have seen, but then she makes them in clay. But like with yours, because they're flat, is yeah. it a more predictable process or no. not? No. No, it's just... <laughs> precarious. <laughs> yeah, it's just as precarious because I've got a kiln that's a circular kiln. So the heat is coming from the edges and it's a, a tile... Form, a large tile form that's on a shelf in the kiln. So the heat is coming from the outside and quite often there's a sort of pocket of cool air in the centre of the kiln. Oh, wow. So it means that if you don't heat everything up evenly, then they tend to crack in the kiln. And then also, yeah, I mean, it, it is terrible. I feel like sometimes to think, why didn't I just work with paper or textiles <laughs> or, you know, something lightweight and predictable. And, you know, but also the other thing is that with glazing, you're working blind with colour. So you, uh, the colour only develops during the firing. So you have to sort of almost hold like a memory of the colour that you're putting down uh, and even if you've put two colours down and they've worked, then when you put the third one down, you have to know what it's going to do, uh, how the glazes are going to interact and how the colours are going to work. And so it's very complex. Sometimes it's a disaster and then sometimes things happen that you hadn't expected that are great. So, yeah, it's really unpredictable. And then sometimes things just crack in the kiln. I mean, I opened the kiln earlier this week and I put four large pieces in takes three days to fire two of them cracked <sighs> one was really ugly and the other one <laughs> i can't even remember it was basically a whole disaster of a kit of a firing and that's three but, days like, yeah waiting, right? yeah it's not just three days waiting but they'd already had 
like three yeah, firing. This is the third firing. Oh so they'd already had two firings each. Oh, yeah. Did anyway. you swear? Uh, yeah, I've just got this <laughs> enormous pile of like broken oh, stuff. No, it's so gutty. Yeah. And and yeah. What, what about fixing things? So if you if you have something that cracks, I know some ceramic artists yeah. will have it fixed. But are you yeah, is that no, opposed to that? Yeah, I can't really. I, I feel like I can't fix anything. No, I just don't. Because also the thing is, if if something cracks in the firing, um then usually there's a sort of soft glazed edge on the on the firing so you can't really put put it together like a broken plate or something you know where the edges are quite sharp mm. and you can sort of almost fix them together with super glue and it becomes invisible usually you've got a soft edge because they'll crack quite early on in the firing and then the glaze will keep flowing uh. so you end up with like two softened edges where the crack is yeah so it's very indiscreet if right, you right, stick right. it together yeah, again yeah. So, yeah, no, I just don't like the idea of sticking together, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> so, it is gutting. And also, I mean, there's some tile panels in the in the show. And with the tile panels, um, because they're, they're modular, the glaze has to match up on every single tile. And in a kiln, I mean, this is boring, no, kiln technology, but in a kiln, there's a sort of slight variation in temperature from top to bottom. And if you put, say, for example, a red glaze and you've got four tiles, one on each shelf, the top one will be completely different texture and color to the bottom one because of the heat. A red is really, so a red glaze, for example, is really sensitive to heat. So it's just all those things like matching the colors up. And sometimes if you're working on a huge piece with many, many colors, it doesn't matter. But if you've got a smaller piece where there might be 10 or 20 tiles, then you really have to make the colour a bit more consistent. Otherwise, it's too visible, um, wow. the differentiation. So, yeah, it's it can be really trying working in ceramics. Wow. <laughs> you've given it yourself this challenge of your yeah, career. Yeah. When it comes Not to the vocabulary, the yeah. tableaus, there are mm. multiple shapes. It feels yeah. like your language is unlimited. But are there yeah. certain kind of rules that you set yourself that you'll never work with this shape or this is a shape that you've done too many times yeah is there a default shape that you always go to and you're like oh no I've yeah. done it again yeah. <laughs> that's my old favorite well the thing is sometimes yeah you're right I do occasionally repeat a shape but I know it's not going to be a real repeat because the glazing is the thing that changes it but I feel that um I think particularly so I suppose with the tableau but also with the with the tile panels in there that I think uh, when I first started working with tile um you know as I said earlier I did respect the grid and I uh, felt that that was what I had to work to and that my geometry within that grid so it was quite often circle and it was like the relationship between circle and square Mm -hmm. which is a real sort of modernist trait you know so thinking about people like Malevich for example you know um and that's what I sort of really adhered to. And then slowly over time, I've sort of become a bit more adventurous. And now the grid has just gone out of the picture. So I feel, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think, oh, actually, the circle is such a satisfying form. And it's really, yeah, quite seductive to keep going back to it and trying to treat it in different ways. Uh, and yeah, occasionally I think, oh, actually, is that being lazy? But actually, no, I really like it. And you can work on it in so many, you know, in so many ways, sort of just 
contemplating color, thinking about division of you know lines to divide the shape up, and you know you could treat it with sort of uh, overlay it with organic forms or a stick to quite a rigid geometry. So yeah, there's a lot you can do even within you know even if you're repeating a shape. And actually, anything off limits? Anything like I'm not going to do? Not that really. No. I mean, I sort of never work on figurative forms. That's the thing. Sometimes people can read into. Uh, the work and feel that they might see something like a head or a torso or something. Yeah, exactly. Something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah, it's always non-figurative. My work's always about human production and the man-made world and and what we've built around us. Um, because I've always been fascinated by the ability of people to make things rather than nature, which is. I mean, I, I, obviously, I love nature and I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by nature, but it never enters the work that I make. I'm much more interested in... Anthropological. Yeah, yeah, and what human beings can do. And I've always really struggled between sort of different technologies. You know, I grew up in a culture that was very manual, as so I had very good manual and dexterous skills. Well, your mum was a seamstress. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so my mum was a seamstress and... Uh, yeah, and we all helped her at home, and you that's know, how you got your so, skills. Like you yeah, skills. From yeah, there. definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I became very good at. I mean, and and also, what's quite interesting with being, you know, with sewing is that you're quite often working from two dimensional form. So uh, if you're working on a, a shirt, for example, you know, it comes as a series of flat objects that then you have to put together, and you and they, and you're constructing a three dimensional form. Uh, that sort of fits the body and so that was sort of I feel like that was a really early um, uh, sort of set of influences that helped me when I was making starting starting to make work out of clay because the three-dimensional forms always they were always like a small-scale slab building so slab building is when you um, roll clay out uh, as a flat sheet and then you cut shapes from it and then mm. you mold them or stick them together into a three-dimensional sculptural object mm. and I feel that that early training of uh, helping my mom as a seamstress was really influential mm. yeah. and in this show um, we were looking at those wooden sculptures which yeah. are quite a new new body of work I think mm. and can you speak a bit about how they were kind of created and yeah. and because and, they're, they're extraordinarily detailed and yeah. I actually was thinking a lot about furniture when I was looking at them but yeah. but it, they're, they're, you almost want to sit on them or yeah. want to interact with them but they're yeah. so beautiful also just to look at yeah so they sort of hover on this line between sort of functionality and sort of architecture micro architecture and looking at different histories of making both technological and manual and I think I explained earlier that they came out of seeing these hybrid objects in the V&A. And uh, at the V&A, it was a six-month residency. I didn't really get a chance to run with any of the research that I'd done there. And so when Ingrid offered me the solo show here, that was a project that was sort of um, gestating in the background. And I felt that I wanted to reenact that process of making between cultures um obviously sort of the colonial uh, uh yeah the, the people who commissioned uh, were located in india but what i wanted to do was to try and go to india with my set of aesthetics and my visual understanding and commission an object 
from a an Indian craftsman and then just sort of run with the translations and the slippages and the uh, uh and the sort of the mismatch of aesthetic sensibility that could occur uh, so reenacting that uh, i suppose yeah just me- mimicking it uh mimicking that process and i think quite often when you're a diasporic artist you either have to uh, and you're adapting to a particular culture you're you're going through a process of uh, adapting rejecting or uh, mimicking a culture mm. so i sort of wanted to try and explore that and of course I got the project running and initially I had a couple of actually I'll go back to how the project began to run so I made I started working the forms out in a very intuitive way so obviously I had all my cultural references in terms of furniture both European and Mm non-European and Asian and then architectural references and thinking also a lot about micro-architecture and how the body responds to sort of interior architecture things like mehrabs or pulpits or confessionals um uh and and then also looking at I suppose thinking about the idea of self-building and looking at the furniture of Enzo Mari in Europe, for example, but also looking at ad hoc furniture. And there's this tradition of furniture making in India. Well, it's not really furniture making, but it's like an ad hoc pulling together of furniture, which is called jugad, Mm. where people just adapt things around them to make a chair or a table or something. Um, uh, so it was look, look, sort of bringing together all those ideas and then starting to make quite intuitively. So initially I made objects with clay on quite a small scale oh, right. and sort of putting ornament at the heart of it as well. Um, uh, so I'd roll out sheets of clay, ornament them and then make objects that were sort of furniture like but also had re- references to microarchitecture mm. uh, and spoke about different histories and different ways that people, different ergonomics and different ways that people would use these furniture. So there are things like bolsters, for example, in some of the work and then sort of enclosures. It's a type of cushion, isn't it? A yeah, it's like, like a yeah, circular Yeah, like a circular cylinder. cushion that you might lean against and they're quite common in India and Pakistan. Mm. And and then charpoys, which are like low beds and, uh, and then segregated spaces because quite often you could go into a cafe in Pakistan or India and there'll be a there'll be a space for women and a space for men, you know. So if you would go with your family, for example, you could just pull a curtain around yourself. So uh, yeah, all those sorts of things are very, uh, uh, very sort of prominent in my mind when I was making these objects. So I created about thirty or forty of these objects, and then selected three which I took forward to to make up a human scale because all my all the sculptural work I'd done previously was quite small scale. So you actually had to mentally project yourself into the object and imagine what it was to inhabit it or relate to it in some way. So I wanted to make objects that you could actually physically respond to and physically sort of interact with. But obviously I didn't have those skills and I didn't really, I didn't want to make them in clay. I wanted to try another material Mm. that was sort of, I could have gone down the sort of traditional sculptural route and made them in concrete or had them cast, for example. But I suppose my craft training came into play. And, I, and I'd, 
Uh, so at Manchester, for example, when I did my first degree, I did it was a wood, metal, and ceramics course. So I sort of and, and I'd specialised in wood and metal, uh, wood and ceramics, and uh, but I'd never taken the wood forward because it wasn't as immediate as ceramics. Ceramics, you could just pick up a piece of clay and work straight away. Whereas with wood, there's lots of processing involved before you got to you the got point. You cut the tree down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it sort yeah, of slows down the creative yeah, process. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Having to cut the, that tree down. I know. <laughs> yeah. With a handsaw, yeah, at night in the woods. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, all those splinters, yeah. So... Um, yeah, so I so I thought wood would be also because it's an organic material. I felt as though it would be really interesting to work in wood. Plus, all the objects that I'd seen at the V&A were wooden objects. So quite often they were made of rosewood with like a, a an ivory inlay. So there's this amazing contrast between materials and very ornate as well. And so I. So once I decided I wanted to work in wood, I tried to find craftsmen in India, but because of COVID, that uh, had to be put on hold. And then eventually I found an amazing um, studio in Woolwich. And I chose them because they had um, a very interesting aesthetic that was sort of, that came out of both manual working, but also... um, they had excellent technological skills. I was also working with technology as well. And I really responded to their aesthetic and I knew that they'd get my work as well. So I approached them. They're called Jan Hensel Studio. They're in Woolwich. And obviously they've got their own aesthetic and they're very creative people. But I approached them and asked them if they would be able to work on my project with me and they were very keen to do so so um yeah so it was it was actually very straightforward I thought that there'd be much more going backwards and forwards and negotiating and correcting but actually we had this sort of feasibility period where we worked out anything that needed to work out Uh, that was at the early stages and then once that was done I just gave them the drawings and uh, measurements and then they translated my drawings into into um, they CAD drawings. I don't know. Uh, I can't think what they were called. Computer-aided uh, design yeah, drawings. Or, yeah. yeah. And then they used sort of both CNC routing and a lot of manual making, which they're very skilled at. So it's that combination that's really important in my work mm. that I, was, I sort of recognised in theirs, and it came together really beautifully. Mm. And it feels like, I totally, but it feels like quite an expensive process, but you were able to yeah. secure an Arts Council fund that's for right. this show. Yeah, yeah. So that was very, uh, yeah. So I was supported by the Arts Council and Peer, uh, uh, Rosa up here helped me to put the application forward so that it is a very expensive process and um, yeah so I was able to sort of secure half the funding to make three objects not for the whole show yeah. just to make these three objects because it was uh, it was a new project and it was uh, it was work that was going to push my practice forward Amazing. and out of the realm of um uh, yeah, uh, the the realm that I'd previously been in. Uh, and they were very supportive of that. And Ingrid was very supportive of that as well. And so, um, yeah, so I, I got the grant and then 
obviously the rest of the money had to be found elsewhere. Fantastic. <laughs> We've got one more work in the show I want to talk about yeah. before we get to the final talk about questions. But your celebration of the industrial, we're mm. seeing in this show again, we've seen mm. wooden works for the first time. And I'm pretty sure these there's kind of like a silver clad piping yeah. and rope work that's being yeah. used in this show, which I think again is is new for you. Yeah, yeah. So that's really new. And again, that's come out of another residency. So I sort of feel it's really important to have these times to step back from your work and think think about um yeah, the direction you want to go in and sort of new exploration and so on. And I was invited to do a residency in Sweden. Um and uh, when I got there, it was just an empty space and no actual making facilities. So there weren't any ceramics facilities, which is actually quite a blessing because it meant that I had to think about new ways of working and explore new materials and new sort of cultural histories and so on. And what was quite interesting in Sweden, obviously, they've got this sort of real... I mean, I've always been interested in self-building. Mm. And um, <clears throat> in Sweden, they've obviously got this little long history of building themselves and raw materials are really accessible so there's a lot of wooden architecture that's quite easy and easy to work with and a lot of people have like sort of small holiday homes around the coast and things like that but they've built themselves yeah yeah. exactly um so when you so what was quite interesting was uh, yeah my initial quest was to find materials to work with and the easiest place to go was to go to a DIY store and they have these enormous DIY stores over there that are like hangers. They're called Bauhaus and they're even modeled on the Bauhaus school, which is oh, quite wow. funny exterior and, you know, the exteriors. And uh, so I just spent like the first few weeks just visiting those constantly and finding new materials to work with. And I'd always been interested in modularity. And I think one of the, I think that going back to the tile works, they came out of a, out of a love of modularity as well um but here it's a sort of different sort of modularity and i found materials like ducting pipe cladding rope and started to think about ways of putting those together to make sculptural objects Mm, in quite a simple way you know I I mean I just had to use glue there wasn't much else I could there weren't any sort of technical facilities to use Uh, and then so that was the sort of the beginnings of the modular work that's in the show and then I also the other uh, material I found was rope and again I think that's quite a culturally specific material to that area because Mm. it's an island culture Lots of people have small boats, so it's almost like you could go to your corner shop and buy rope, you know. Mm-hmm. It was just available very readily, um, and lots of different varieties of it, which was quite sort of seductive. And I took the rope back and thought about how to work with it. And because I had also such an enormous empty space, I felt like I wanted to fill the space with something, like it was horror vacui at play. Yeah. So I started to draw with the rope on onto the walls and and then pin the rope into into place and I made a series of sort of object weight based works but then also did sort of quite expansive drawings with the rope across the space um and obviously I was only there for uh for three weeks no not three weeks six weeks sorry it was a 12-week residency but again because of covid it was uh it was shortened to six weeks so I started these projects but I wasn't able to sort of really resolve them and then when I had the peer show Ingrid 
really encouraged me because she was really aware that I wanted to move away from just being described as a ceramic artist. I wanted to just be a sculptor who worked with any material I wanted to work with um, and to explore materials and different processes and so on. And, uh, she, and so I had the woodworks. So that was, um, you know, that was one body of work. And uh, sort of about six weeks before the show, Ingrid just said, I think you should maybe put a few more materials in. So I suddenly just was, uh, yeah, so I, I suddenly thought, actually, this modular work is going to be perfect. And the lagging piece, again... That's it the makes, silver piece. Yeah, yeah. And it's it makes all sorts of references, both to industrial sort of... Um, modularity but also uh sort of tropes of of the ornamental in islamic architecture or um you know because of its reflective quality i mean quite often in if you go to india you can see these palaces with like mirrored almost like mirrored mosaic ceilings so it's got that sort of reflective quality to it and it works really beautifully in the doorway so it's like a not it's almost like a, a never-ending object um and yeah i like the system that sort of uh, uh there's a there's a sort of structure that holds it together and it's a system of of uh racking and clips and then the pipes so that really to me, yeah like exactly kind of snake on Nokia. yeah yeah, like, yeah yeah or like you know i've always liked models and kits um, never really had access to them but been fascinated by them from a distance yeah. you know so i like the kit quality uh of of the uh, of the of the materials in the system and so yeah so I sort of designed it as a drawing and then I worked with a, a model maker again in on the Walworth Road to to make it up and install it for me. The thing I love about it is that it's right in the center of the two rooms so yeah. when you walk into the space it's actually a really kind of uh, anchor in the middle of the show somehow yeah. but yeah. I, I love the fact that you're kind of revealing something because it's not a real pipe system at all but no. you've Trump, but it's Trump almost like or... yeah it is yeah. but it's kind of the sort of thing that you'd normally have boxed in especially in contemporary yeah. homes and things yeah, like that definitely. everyone's always trying to hide their pipes yeah, you know absolutely. there was a time when people were actually even here in this room where they paint the pipes yeah. like mm. the same color as the wall but yeah. I, I really like the fact that um, it, it sort of brought to mind slightly um, another guest we've had on the show Phila Dabalo mm. who's worked a lot with kind of like like um, scrim and like oh, cement yeah. and kind of materials that often people would never think to have yeah. in an artwork. Yeah. So I found it quite arresting when I, and Russell actually yeah. said, you do realize that's an artwork. Yeah. And I was like, yes, Russell. <laughs> Cause it was actually the first thing I saw when I walked in the room. I was like, that's genius. Like yeah. I, I really liked that. Is yeah. there something about I that and not concealing things or something? Yeah. Well, it's quite interesting because I came across that. So I'd worked with some lagging when I was in Sweden, but then when I came back, I was working on a project at Great Ormond Street uh, children's hospital where they were developing a new building and uh, as we went as I went in to install work the building was sort of half it, it was in the process of being finished and the lagging the pipe lagging actually it hadn't been clad the ceiling hadn't been clad so the lagging was all revealed and you could see running through these dark spaces like this gleaming light you know of line and very satisfying and I sort of I just made a mental note that I must do something with this material and joined it together when I was offered the opportunity uh 
with the lagging work that I've done at Sweet in Sweden. But also, what's what I really like about it is it's site specific. So there's that sort of nod to the architectural projects that I've done previously. So it's sort of really it's like a piece that ties things together really beautifully. And even the reflective surface of the ceramics, because you've yeah. got the natural light here, mm. and the, even at nighttime with the street lamps and things like yeah, that, definitely. I feel like the reflections of them yeah. and, and that on a I don't know if that's a formal level, but that's some kind of like you know on a material level it, yeah. it, it's a really strong kind of element in the exhibition so where's that site specific then will you be recreating that at the middlesbrough institute of modern art where yeah. it moves next because uh, that will live live here and then it's gone or uh, no so uh, yeah i was very aware of the fact that i didn't want it to end up in landfill but you know but so or you know it, it's one of those pieces it is site specific but i've sort of designed it in such a way that it can come apart and be reconfigured. So when it goes to Mima, for example, it can either exist around another doorway where we can add to it. And mm. because it's a system, you can do that quite easily. Oh, right. uh, so either I can add to it and make another more complex three-dimensional form, or it can be sort of spread out and applied to a wall and connected oh, with wow. further. That's yeah, cool. so it can grow in It can scale. adapt as well. Yeah. It's a sustainable yeah, exactly. site-specific work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and it can adapt to any space. And yeah. And I mean, also, obviously, it's quite a sort of fragile material. It's not designed to be handled continuously. But yeah. once it's up, it's fairly... Um, it's fairly resilient, and it's, I think there is a tendency for people to want to poke it, you know. Yeah. But but I think once it's up away out of reach. Well, your dad even didn't great. your dad come over and poke some of your yeah. work? <laughs> or the tableaus on the shelf? Didn't he come over yeah, and test he's them? Just checking that they were fixed down properly. <laughs> you were like, yeah. Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> Love it. That's funny. No. Yeah. And the, the the blue rope work in there. Yeah. I think that's one of my favourite pieces in the show. I didn't. I didn't. Re I don't think I've ever seen that. In, you know, in, in your um no language no. before. Yeah. So yeah, that's. I love that piece. piece. Yeah. yeah. The, and that is again is it's it's a site specific piece. It's made out of one continuous coil of rope. So I did sort of work on it at home on a flat piece of board and measure out exactly how much rope I made I needed and then you know and then recreated it on site but again that's uh that's another piece I think at Mima it can um it can be added to or I've got a series of forms that I developed in Sweden that um that I can recreate in the new space so obviously here I only had room to do one but mm. there's sort of um yeah I mean I, I in Sweden I worked only on rope form so it didn't have the ceramic they didn't have the ceramic elements to it but I think that really sort of anchors so the rope works its way around these sort of circular ceramic discs and they really serve to anchor the the objects onto the uh so it's not on, not just onto the wall, but sort of anchor them visually, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that I'll continue in uh, in Middlesbrough. It's so successful. I mean, what I, I just love your work because it's this kind of constant push and pull between the ancient and the modern and the contemporary, yeah. and then the retro. I mean, the yeah. colours when people come to your tiles, they feel like retro tiles, mm. like Eduardo Pavolozzi. You yeah. can see the colouring that he uses, the tones he uses. Yeah. They we know where that is in history, but it feels like yours kind of leaps through time. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's sort of it's the way of maybe keeping nimble and uh and not uh conforming and not uh yeah i suppose 
yeah, not performing in that sort of normative way where you're expected to to uh, adhere to this set of structures. You mm. know, I think when you when you're not belonging to either structure, then it's easy to sort of subvert those, um, stay apart from it in a way. Yeah, we think you're brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> so we're going to go on to our final questions. Uh, every talk art guest, we ask them the same questions. The first one is, if you could do an art heist. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know okay. if you collect yourself or yeah. if you live with your own work, which you do in your studio, but if you could steal any work of art in the world, yeah. from anywhere in the world, and this okay. would be fascinating from you, what yeah. would it be and why? Okay, so, um, oh, I mean, obviously it's a very difficult question, but I think one piece of work that's really related to this exhibition that I... Uh, that sort of kicked off a lot of the thinking behind the sculptural large wooden objects. There's a there's a watercolor of uh, in the V&A. It's not on show. It's sort of behind the scenes. Mm. And I was um, uh, very kindly shown it by one of the curators at the V&A. And it's a watercolor of an Asian lady who's sitting on a European style chair, but. She's adopting her normal way of sitting on the floor. So she normally, if she was sitting on the floor, she would sort of squat and have her legs sort of slightly tucked around her. And she's doing that on a Western-style chair, elevated off the floor mm. and smoking a hooker and looking really relaxed. And I sort of feel like it's a really great metaphor for the way that I've gone through my life, sort of feeling like I should adapt and then sort of compromising myself. But in this image, there's this woman. She's just doing it her own way. She doesn't care whether her legs should be dangling and her feet should be on the floor. She's just adopting her own position in a new setting. Mm. And I think that's the thing. I mean, it hasn't got a name. There's not a... Obviously, because it's a historic work and people didn't really... How old is it? Uh, probably from about the 19th century, okay. early wow. 19th century, wow. I would say. Yeah, it's very small, um, and there's not much else going on it. You know, just a bit of landscape, and you can know. you send us an image of that so we can put yeah, it? On I will. Yeah, I will. I will. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah. She's just not conforming, which no. is what you kind of stand by. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. The other question yeah. we ask every guest is, "What is your favourite colour?" Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I feel as though I have to say red because. Yeah, that's the colour I'm always searching for in my wardrobe or in my lipstick collection. Yeah. I feel like it just does something. It just sort of enlivens everything, you know, and people notice it and respond to it. So I, I feel in the world, uh, when I'm out there, red is the thing that I always graduate, a colour that I always graduate towards. And then when I'm working... Yeah, red is always there. It's sort of quite Are predominant. You're fighting against it's it, like, like the default shape. I was asking, yeah. her, is, is red your default yeah. colour to go to for glazes? Yeah, I and... think it is, actually. Also, because it's so elusive in glazing, you know, it's very, it's a very difficult colour to get right. And so I think it's that sort of, yeah, it's that sort of push and pull, isn't it? It's Your... that retro red as well, with the yeah. retro colours that we yeah. sort of imagine. It's very that. associated with the 70s, yes. I think, those glazes, the cadmium selenium glazes. So, yeah, I think that's what everyone remembers from their childhood. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what's the best advice you've been given, um, like, during your whole kind of artist career? Really mind 
Just trying to locate it to a person. Uh... I've got a reversing truck anyway, so it's well timed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, you can cross. Oh no, definitely, oh, we, we can, can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Or you can spin it. And what's the advice that you would give younger artists? Um. Okay. So, what would I give younger? Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting because a friend of mine always says, because I sort of feel like it's taken me so long to get to this point. Uh, you know, I've been working for 30 years and this is my first solo show. Um, and one of my friends always says, it's hard work. Hard work always pays off. And I feel, yeah, I have worked hard, but also I've had some quite lucky breaks where things have happened um like completely unpredictably you know somebody's mentioned my work to somebody or sent an image of my work and oh. then that's developed a connection in a very unpredicted way mm. um but yeah i think it's just it is i i feel like i have worked really hard for 30 years but mm, yeah i think the thing that i didn't do which probably would have shortened the process uh, or shortened the, the the journey to getting to where I am now is I never spoke up for myself I wasn't confident enough in what I was doing I didn't have the courage to push my work out there and really just speak up and I think if you can do that and you can be yeah confident and articulate in presenting your own work and yourself in a non-pushy way I think that will really get you much further, much quicker. It's also interesting, the idea of hard work, because I think if you can focus passionately on something that you really believe in, you will actually create your own luck. So even though it might feel like, because um, we have that as well, even with talk art, I feel like you, you get lucky breaks and things happen. But if you weren't putting all your all into it yeah. and being as authentic as you possibly can be and passionate, then yeah. those that, that luck would never have come to you, no. if you see what I mean. Yeah. You have to sort of just put yourself yeah. out into the world yeah. in whatever way makes you feel comfortable. Yeah. I know. Um, I mean, the thing that I always tell my son is that you have, you have to talk about your, uh, you know, you can't be shy. You have to actually, if you've got a skill, you have to actually tell people about it or demonstrate it to people. You can't just shut yourself away in the studio and work and hope that some something will happen. Mm -hmm. You actually have to get out there in the world and have the courage of your convictions and be courageous about your work, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think being engaged is always good, especially with your peers and like other artists and things like that. And yeah. I think if you can have a support network where you're encouraging somebody else, yes, then often that person, if yeah. they're, say you're quite shy, for example, yeah. I never was, but if you mm. were, then if you have a friend who isn't shy and mm. you support them, they might then shout your name yes, from the rooftops. Definitely. So there's definitely that kind of thing yeah. as well, which yeah. we see a lot, I think, I think um, these so. days with younger yeah. eyes. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, it's interesting because I sort of feel uh, somebody said, oh, actually, as you're becoming more and more successful, you know, you have to remember to carry people along with you as well. Mm. And I think that was a really good piece of advice. And mm. I feel it's not always easy to do, uh, you know, because you, you have to find the right um, 
yeah, you have to find the right direction to sort of, or, or the right time to sort of carry and introduce somebody. But I think that's really important that as you become more successful, that you carry your peers with you. Yeah, definitely. Oh, wow. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you. This has been so brilliant. This has been brilliant. a little mini adventure across East London. I've loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, for pr- all images we've been talking about today, please go to the at Talk Art on Instagram and at Talk Art on Twitter. Lubna, are you on Instagram? Are you? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm Lubna Chowdhury. There we go. Uh, yeah. And also visit Peer Gallery, Peer Gallery um, on Instagram. which is based um, very close to Old Street Station yeah, in the please, heart of Shoreditch. Please get here before November 20th. And if you miss that, you can travel to Middlesbrough next year to go and see it there. And I have a feeling we're going to be seeing a lot more of Lubna's work. Absolutely. Um, uh, thank you so much for this wonderful exhibition. It's a really great thing. And we are now going to head over to Freeze Art Fair because we're actually recording this um, on the weekend of Freeze. Yeah. And we're going to go and see your gallery. Javiri um, Contemporary, which yeah. is based in Mumbai. I actually met, I saw you on the booth the other day with, and I met Priya, who I've been talking to online, who is just a legend. I love Priya. Hey, Priya. Yeah, hey, Javiri Contemporary. And, yeah. and you've been working with them for a um, short while. Five years, yeah. Five years. Yeah. And they're and actually showing your work to, um, uh, this week in Freeze. Yeah, that's right. I've got a couple of pieces on there, but C20 at Freeze. Yeah. Awesome. So we're going to head over there now. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back very soon. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.